Hey, uh, I wanted to first of all just uh, thank a lot of you. I can't see over here a lot. Are the Bennetts? I can't remember what service they're in. I don't think they're over. They're usually over this way. Uh, uh, Friday, we had the privilege of getting to uh, adopt another little girl. And so um, I have her picture somewhere up here. There she is. Oh. <laughs> all right, let's pray. I think it's been a good sermon. So, um, uh, but uh, like the Bennetts, they were there, another family inside a cornerstone. And I know so many of you do foster care and adoption. I mean, even just I'm looking around at all these people that by the grace of God are just taking in all these little orphan kids. And I just, if you're new to Cornerstone, just so you know, this is one of our big passions. We really believe God has a heart for the orphan. And so even, I mean, gosh, I look over here, just all these people. I just love that Cornerstone says, we'll take those little knee biters. Come on, we'll bring them in. And this is loved on them. And so anyways, uh, but thank you for your kindness towards my wife and I just uh, in that way. And so uh, anyways, that being said, let's grab our Bibles. If you don't have a Bible here today, let me just tell you something. There's some back there. Um, if you're going to call Cornerstone your home, uh, you need a Bible. Uh, we truly believe that the Bible is the word of God written by God. He carried men along the greatest truth ever so that we might know what is life and godliness. And so if you don't have a Bible, you need one. It's the way God speaks to us and tells us truth. And so if you need a Bible, you can go back there. There's uh, the beautiful Greg Burkhart. Uh, he's, he's handing them out. He's my Vanna White. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, just we're going to dig into the Word of God. And so if you can, um, open your Bibles up to John 12, uh, and we're going to be, or John 13, excuse me. That's where we're going to be today. Now let me just uh, say off the beginning, um, I'm going to go a little bit longer today, okay? So for those of you that, that right now are cringing, going, ah, suck it up. <laughs> I want us to know and experience this text. And there is just like, it's just loaded with info. And so this morning, I want you to grasp it, know it, because I think what Jesus is trying to help us understand is that once we grasp this, we're finally going to be alive, I think at the core of it, that's what he's trying to do. He's, what he's done is he's given us these two realities. There's those that, re, that rejected him, and we see that like in John 1.11. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. And the, the, just the horror of that wasn't just that they experienced this idea in AD 70 in which Jerusalem was destroyed, but the idea actually is, and it carries, and it's in, especially like in, in, in John where it talks about this idea that they're still in their sins, meaning when they stand in front of God one day, there is nothing whatsoever other than their sinfulness. And because of that, they will spend an eternity apart from God in a place prepared for, the, for Satan and his angels. That's the weight of rejecting him. But I love how he goes on in John 1.12 where he, he then carries it out and he goes, but he had that beautiful just statement to all who did receive him, to all who believed on his name. He gave the right to become children of the king. What? I come to him by faith, nothing of my own other than to come to him by faith and I am made a child of the king and I follow Jesus. Yes, that's what he's saying. That's at the core of the message to which Jesus was crying out to this. But the key is, and look at chapter 12, look at verse 50. It talks about this idea that there's this commandment that God gave to Jesus. The command was to follow Jesus. And here's the key. To those that reject him, it was an awful outcome. But to those that received Jesus, that followed Jesus, that took the commandment of God to follow him, at the, the core of this commandment of God to follow his son, look at this word, is the result that there is life. 
the promise you'll be made alive. You'll be given a whole new perspective on on life in a a powerful and unique way. This this little word life that's in verse 50 is all over the book of John. In fact, it's used about 50 different times all throughout it. So obviously John is trying to tell us something extremely important. Those that follow Jesus should expect life. I think in some cases, the references to like length of time, it'll say like eternal life, kind of describing it that way. But in every single case, the idea is Jesus wants his people to understand it refers to quality. I think the best way I can say it, in other words, what it's telling us is this word life tells us what it really means to be alive. That's what he's getting at here. That's what he's promising to those that follow Jesus and I think that the core thought of, what, of what's going on here is that God has this love for his chief creation for men and for women. And he wants nothing more than for them to understand what it means to truly be alive. That's at the core of the gospel. It's a relationship with God, but this relationship should be experienced in people that are just alive. Not perfect. We know we're not perfect. But that's what makes us come to God more and experience this life. And please catch this. Jesus came so that we might have life and life what? Abundantly. That's his promise. And he he knows that we are most alive. And I think the key to this text we're going to be in today is that he knows when we're most alive, when we're not living for ourselves, that when we're living for him and we're serving others. And in other words, once you get your eyes off of yourself and onto God and serving other people, the idea of Jesus that he's going to convey to us today is then you're going to experience life. That's what he's after. And you know that there are so many disappointed and struggling Christians in the world. Why? Because their eyes are on themselves and they're not on God and they're not out serving people. And so they're just flat out poopy. And Jesus says, that's not my people. Man, I came so you might have life. And I think also God designed it that that we would have what I call a so that life. In other words, he gives life so that you can be a part of his redemptive project, so that you can be a part of his mission on this earth. He doesn't give us life so that we can sit around and eat bonbons and watch cartoons. He gives us it so that we can go out into this world and join him in what he's doing. In fact, you will never experience life till you're out there joining him in what he's doing. That's the idea. It's a so that life. And Jesus came to this world, and I love that he modeled the so that life for us. He did nothing other than the Father's will, and he was full of life because of it. And I'm just saying this this morning, please catch this. If you want life and you want to live it to its fullest, you will follow in the steps of Jesus. That's life. So here's where we're going today. I believe that's what God wants us to see in the Gospel of John. So when we get into John 13, I think what he's doing, he's he's offering us a model. He's offering the apostles this model of of what it looks like to truly be alive. It revolves around self-sacrifice for God by by loving one another. It's so counterintuitive to the world that we live in. But look at John 13, 17, because I don't want you to think he's going to call us to these things just to make us into these drudgery people. Look at this. If you know these things, look at that word, blessed are you if you do them. If you know these things and you do these things, you're what we're going to talk about today, you will be blessed or happy or content or satisfied or hear this idea is you will be alive. So here's what we're going to look at today, okay? So everybody buckle in. 
We're going to look at this idea, this question that Jesus is going to answer. How did Jesus model this life for us? How did he show us what life looked like? What, what is it like to be made alive? Look at John 13, 1. Here's the first one. The first one he does for us is that he loved us to the fullest extent. That's the first one. If we're going to experience life, we need to learn to love how Jesus did, and that is to love to the fullest extent. Now, when we come to chapter 13, Jesus might be done with Israel, but now beginning here, and he's going to go all the way through verse 17, we have Jesus devoting himself to those who did receive him. Okay, that's key here. Those who did receive him. In the scene, as John tells us, look at verse 1. It's before the feast of the Passover. So here's all the guys. They're, they're gathered around with him in Jerusalem. And, and as far as they're concerned, they're going to celebrate the Passover on God's calendar, though. This is really the last true Passover that's going to take place. He's going to replace it with a new supper. And so all the guys are getting together to celebrate the most important feast, really, inside of Judaism with Jesus. That's all they know they're showing up for. But God has something else in mind. John also tells us in verse 1, and I love this, Jesus knew, he was fully aware that his hour had come to depart from the world to the Father. Now for John, what he's trying to tell us is, is to leave this world that he's talking about and go to the Father is a euphemism of sorts. He's trying to tell them that Jesus is about to experience the cross death, the the one in which he'll suffer. And the idea is, is that Jesus is fully aware of this. He knew. He was leaving this world, but he was leaving his own behind. And and the gap left by Jesus' departure and the disciples' need for instruction on, on how to live life, how to be fully alive in the world once Jesus left, he knows that's just desperately needed. He needs to show them before he leaves. It's 24 hours before he exits this world. And if you could just imagine, if you had 24 hours left to live with the people that you love the most, you would sit him down and go, I need to talk to you about the most important things ever. If I knew I was going to be dead in 24 hours, I'd grab my wife and kids around me and go, this is the most important thing that you can know. Listen to me, watch me. See, at the core of it, he's answering this question. If you had 24 hours to live, what would you do? Jesus' answer to that is, I would wash 24 feet. So now notice at the end of verse 1. It says, having loved his own, and I love those two words, his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There is no better way to define the kind of love Jesus has for us than to call us his own. Sure, Jesus had a love for the world. We know that, right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, but like a husband for his own wife, his love for us is distinctive. It's different. And I think at the core of this, Christ's love of his own is meant to show us something specific about those who did receive him, those that came to him. And I think John is looking back over the entire ministry of of Jesus, and he's taken the reader there to show him that what Jesus has been doing from the beginning with the apostles is he's just been day out and day in and day out just loving them over and over, and he's going to love them, the idea is, to the end. So what does it mean he loved them to the end? Now, in this case, you've got to understand this little word, this little word inside the Greek can mean time, but it can also mean quality. And probably in this case, what it means is it doesn't mean time, it means quality. 
It means not that he's going to love them until he goes to the cross, but the idea is he's going to love them completely, utterly, with full, total, just love towards them. He's going to love them at the utmost. And with full knowledge of his coming death, this was so crazy, of his resurrection, of the, the glory, the task of bearing sin on the cross, he was still preoccupied with loving them. All this is on his mind. He knew this was coming up without any reservation. He still grabbed them around them and he loved them. Jesus could have been preoccupied in that moment. And there's no doubt about it. But instead, what did he do? He just kept loving them, loving them fully without reservation. And I was thinking about this as concerned as he must have been. Having prayed later on, we're going to learn this in, I think it's chapter 17, where he says to the Father, man, glorify with me with the glory you had before the beginning. In other words, he's telling him he really wanted to go back. He wanted to be with the Father. He wanted to be in the Father's presence, but still with total consciousness, he knew. He just sat there, and he made sure those guys knew they were secure in his love. He loved them. All the way to the cross, all the way through the grave, all the way into eternity, completely without reservation. And listen to me. Jesus loves you too. All the way. No reservations. Nothing held back. There's this little book that I love to read my kids. It's about the big brown hair and the little brown hair. And it's a big brown hair, the dad, trying to describe to his kid how much he loves him. And so they're going, I love you, you know, this much. Well, you know, the dad's bigger. I love you this much. And the little boy gets up and goes, well, I love you this much. And dad stands up, well, I love you this much. And he just keeps going on and on. And finally, the little kid looks at his dad and he goes, yeah, but I love you all the way to the moon, right? As he falls asleep. And the dad says, yeah, well, I love you all the way to the moon and back. Jesus loves us all the way to the moon and back and back and back and back. Just to the fullest extent. Never, ever forget that. And to cement home this point, you and I will never be more alive and more content and more satisfied than we love in this way as well. He's calling us now to love in the same way. He's not calling us to love like humans loved. Now, we can't apart from the Holy Spirit. I don't want anybody to think they can leave somehow and do this apart from the power of God. That's why he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit in chapters 14, 15, and 16. I don't have the power to do it, but you will never, ever consider doing what Christ is about ready to do unless you learn to love like this. This passage doesn't start with washing feet where we're going to go. It starts with love. That's key. So that's the first thing. You'll be most alive when you, when you love to the fullest, so my, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, if we're going to be most alive in this way, who could ever reject that kind of love? And what is crazy is one of the 12 did. That's nuts to me. John includes it. You can see this in this next verse, in verse 2, so that these guys knew how much Jesus loved them. He loved them to the moon and back. He modeled it towards them. And now what he's going to do is he's going to model it by loving an enemy. He's going to show us that we will be most alive, sure, when we love those that love us, but he's going to say this, you will be most alive when you love your enemies. And I think what's cool about this is Jesus is now going to help us understand this in John. Look at verse 2. During the supper... When the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now this is important to understand. Judas is one of the twelve, not because he slipped past Jesus in choosing him, 
but because he's going to tell us later that scripture might be fulfilled. Look at verse 18. Jesus is talking to all these guys and saying, look, I'm not speaking of all of you. He's, he's talking about this idea of those that experience his love. He says, I know whom I've chosen, but scripture will be fulfilled. This is from Psalm 49. Who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you might believe that I'm in he. Like last week when, when Israel rejected, when rejected Jesus, it's happening in the same way here. He was written into this story in such a way that he would reject Jesus Christ. There's no doubt about it. He was prophesied about. This doesn't give him an excuse whatsoever. He is still fully responsible. He still fully knew what he was doing. But when Jesus chose Judas, it tells us in John 64, he knew that would be the guy that would betray him. The idea is, again, that Jesus knew. And I don't think this is the main point, though. I think the main point is, is he's creating this important contrast because here's Jesus, just love oozing out all over these guys, full and total love. Right in the middle of washing their feet, though, there is absolute and there's total hatred in the person of Judas right in front of Jesus. This tragedy, I think, is, is that Judas who was constantly just sitting, soaking in the light of who Jesus was and everything that he said and did. He was living in darkness. He constantly experienced the love of Jesus, yet he hated him at the same time. So why did John put this in here? I mean, he could have described Jesus, like I was thinking about this, he could have described Jesus' love with words like amazing, breathtaking, colossal, unbelievable, but in order to talk about his love, I think John wants us to understand the extent of the love of Jesus. So what he does in here is he reminds us in just clear ways that Judas had the blackest kind of hatred and rejection so that we can see how amazing the love of Jesus is. It was a contrast. This hatred, John wants us to know, it's fully in cahoots with the devil who's hated God from the beginning. In a little while, can, if you can just sit and think about it for a little bit, Jesus is going to be kneeling at the feet of Judas, the man who would betray him, washing those feet. Judas, a self-centered, money-hungry man, is just sitting there, and he opens himself up to the devil, and what does Jesus do? He loves him and washes his feet. I was thinking a lot about this this week, about Judas. I'll be honest with you, he, he plagues my thinking. I, the thing that confuses me the most is the words of, of love by which Jesus, he's preaching all the time, and to 11 of them, he just drew to himself, but for some reason, the same words of Jesus drove Judas away. The same times as Jesus would preach, those men would be so moved, but the words of Jesus didn't move Judas, they actually poisoned his heart. That's wild to me. And what we learn in the end is, is that he saw Jesus wasn't going to give him the power that he wanted. And so what he did, does is, is instead of sticking around Jesus, he goes and gets it elsewhere from the Sadducees and the Pharisees. In other words, Judas was just black and cold. And the crazy part about it, I thought about it, that Jesus could have totally at that moment defeated Satan with just the power of his word and force and power. He could have blasted Satan away. He could have brought his wrath upon Judas at that particular moment. And what does he do? He gets down on his knees and he washes feet. And John wants us at this point to go, wow. 
Look at verse 11. He, look at this word, knew who was to betray him. He knew it. Like everything else, Jesus is approaching us with his eyes completely wide open. He's facing the imminent betrayal. He's facing the imminent uh, arrest and trial. This man who is going to coordinate everything. But Jesus never lost sight of the goal. He just got down on his knees in front of this man, this dark man in cahoots with Satan. And he grabbed his feet and he started washing him. He continues in 11, you are not clean at all. Why did Jesus say that? Why did he have to say out loud to the disciples, you all are clean, you just, the rest of you are, but not all of you are clean. I believe he said it in order that we might get to understand that he's delivering a punch in the gut of Judas so that Judas would know that Jesus knew. Jesus is one last time looking at this one that's going to betray him. He's giving him one last opportunity, like he gave the Israelites one last opportunity. Judas, don't do it. Judas, you're not clean. You're not saved. Don't do it. And if you can imagine just a little bit what must have been going through Judas's mind as Jesus just sat there and he washed Judas's feet. We get a little glimpse in verse 21. Look there. So that after saying these things, after talking to the guys about washing feet, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved, that's John. He always called himself that. The one whom Jesus loved is reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter, and I love this, motion to ask you know, Jesus, hey, ask Jesus, who is it? Would you please, John? And so there's John. He leans back up against Jesus. Lord, who is it? <laughs> I don't know what it looked like, but it must have been weird in our culture. Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Oh my gosh. Satan entered into him. He opened himself up and Satan came right in. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. And I think in that case, he's talking to both Judas and to Satan. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Judas was, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Here's what's crazy. Jesus washing his feet had no effect on him. Zero. Wow. Judas wasn't clean. He looked clean on the outside. And that is scary to me because everyone thought he was clean. It scares me right now to look around this room and to realize there could be a Judas in our midst. You look clean, but you're not. You don't really know Jesus. In fact, I was sitting about thinking about it this week. He probably looked more clean than Peter, didn't he? The big loudmouth Peter. I think if all the guys were taking a vote on probably who wasn't saved, it'd be like, I'm not going to tell Peter, but I think it's Peter. <laughs> Little did they know, the guy that kept quiet the whole time, that never said a thing, was the one that was sitting there that looked so good and ended up betraying Jesus. 
Now here's what I think we're trying to, he's trying to teach us out of this point. When we love our enemies, and it definitely won't get us the praise of men, will it? It is not a fun thing to love our enemies. So how does loving our enemies give us life? How does it make us alive to love our enemies? And if you remember last week, I asked you this key question, and, and I threw it out there because I knew we were coming to it this week. Do you want to honor Jesus or men? Do you specifically want to honor the honor, the praise, the smile of God more than anything else? Because listen, Jesus loved Judas not because he enjoyed it, but because it pleased the Father. That's what gave him life. Pleasing the father. So he's sitting there washing the man that hates him so greatly. But he knew that the father was looking down on him with a smile. Knowing that God, I don't really love this one like I should. But I love you. And I'm doing it because it pleases you. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. See, when you love your enemies, you're actually telling God, God, I want to please you more than anything. That's what it means to love your enemies. It's not fun, but it just receives the smile of the father. That's what gives us life. And I think loving your enemies makes no sense outside of pleasing your father. It didn't make any sense at all. So Jesus modeled what it means to be alive. And here's the first thing. He, he modeled what it means to be alive or to love to the fullest extent by loving your enemy. Or first of all, by, by this idea of a stretching big love. Next, he's going to talk about this idea of loving your enemies. But I love that he doesn't stop there. He showed us how to truly have life by doing it with action. This is key. Jesus never asked us to do something that he wasn't first willing to do himself. And what Jesus is about ready to do, he's not about ready just to talk about it. He's about ready to walk the walk. In other words, he's going to show the guys what he means. Now, against this backdrop of Judas, now this is key to this, we're going to see Jesus' love shine in an incredible way. That's why he put Judas in there. And it's an important thing to realize that, that love must be more than words. And in, in fact, in, in John's first epistle, and I can't remember where it's at at the top of my head. I meant to look it up last night. But he says, little children, I don't want you just to love in word or talk. But he says, I want you to love in deed and in truth. That's how I want you to love. Love that's real is expressed in activity. We don't sit around and talk about it. It's not just words. In other words, don't tell me you love me. Show me that you love me. You don't have to say a word if you show me. But look at verse 3. Here's a common theme. He's going to show us what it looks like to, to live life to the fullest. And it says, Jesus knowing. He knew about the first thing. He knew about the second thing. And knowing again that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Now check this out. What this verse is, is just a comprehensive statement of how incredible Jesus is. That's what he's doing here. It means that everything belongs to Jesus. There is no one that could be any higher than to someone whom God had given everything. That's what he's trying to show us here. And not only that, but he even says this, he came from God and now he's going back to God. In contrast to Judas, John is exalting Jesus Christ as one without equal, one that is to be worshipped. And the idea is, is that says it all. He is the one who received everything from God. He's the highest. He came from the highest. He's going to return to the highest. He possesses everything from God. And God has given all things into his hands. And I was thinking about it, that this idea that it's one thing for me to wash another human's feet. That's one thing. But that Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, would stoop down and wash the feet 
of sinful men, that's humiliation, and that's what Jesus is about ready to do. John is telling us, do you get who Jesus is? And you're about ready to see Jesus stoop and do what a slave does. He's setting it up this way. This is the key to being alive. In other words, we are most alive. We're most living life to the fullest, even though I said that completely inaccurately, when we are humble. When Jesus loved in action, you saw humility on display. Now, if you remember in this, what they're doing is, is, and let me just give you a background. They were coming from the Olivet, and their feet would have been extremely dirty. This is very common at this time because the roads were mostly dirt. They walked around in sandals. Those were kind of in fashion at that particular time. And if you've ever seen anybody's feet that wears sandals a lot, like mine, they are nasty. My wife asks me one a year, once a year, can you, baby, can you go get a pedicure? Because your feet are nasty. I've only done it once. There would have been mud. There would have been dirt. There would have been animal waste even on their, food, on their feet. And so it was very common at this time to have foot washing. In fact, in every Jewish home you would have had at the entrance, there would have been large pots of water. There would have been also a basin that they would have poured it in because everybody needed to their, wash their feet. It was kind of expected that time. It was hygiene. Like we try to teach our kids how to wash their hands. They also not only washed their hands, but they taught their kids to wash their feet. And the, the person that would do this was the slave of the home or else the little kids would do it. In other words, the lowest of the low inside of your home, that's who would wash feet. That was his job or her job. It was the most menial, menial task. But as they all arrived at the upper room, if you can just imagine this, where they would celebrate the Last Supper, there's, we, we understand that there's probably no servant up there. There's no slave. And one of the 12 should have said, look, you know, hey, fellas, come on over. I'll wash your feet. And probably another one should have said, okay, why don't you wash and, and I'll dry. And it would have made it a very beautiful night. But at the end of it, what we're going to find out is they were all selfish, really selfish. Extremely Selfish. You ask, how do you know that? I don't, Todd, I don't see it in the text. It seems like maybe you're reading it into a little bit, but I'm not. In Luke 22, 24, in this same event, you don't have to go there. I'm just going to tell you kind of what happened. They had just arrived at the house, and what they're talking about, it says in verse 24, Luke 22, 24, is that it says, a dispute arose amongst them in regard to who was the greatest. They're about ready to see the king of kings and lord of lords get down on his knees and wash feet. And they're walking in like a bunch of puffed up roosters going, I'm the greatest. John and James, man, they would have been there. And they're like, yeah, not only that, but my mama said I'm the greatest. You know, she even goes to Jesus and has to do it. He's like, what? So there they are, mulling around, arguing about who's the greatest and you know that in an argument about who's the greatest, nobody's going to go down there and wash feet. Nobody. There is no possible way. It just reeked of self. We know that there's water there. We know the basin's there. The towel's there. Everything is ready. And from what we can tell in this text, Jesus never said a word. I love that. Nobody even thinks to wash anybody's feet. They're bickering about who's the greatest with nasty, dirty feet. And Jesus must have just waited and waited. 
And at some point, you can see this from the text, they must have sat down. It would have been a U-shaped table. The, the food is ready. It's served. They begin to eat. Their feet are still dirty and nasty. And, and nobody moved a muscle to serve. And it's this unique point. It says somehow Jesus, compelled by this love that he has for these guys, he doesn't do it out of frustration. He doesn't do it out of anything. What he does, though, is in this act of humiliation, he's going to give them a demonstration of what leadership and authority looks like. You guys are arguing about the greatest I'll show you in my kingdom who's the greatest. That's what I'm going to do. Look at verse 4. He rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments. And taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Imagine the scene. Jesus, calm and dignified and total silence, stood up, removed his outer clothing, probably even taken off his inner tunic. He would have totally exemplified a slave at that point. He would have been almost naked. Walked over, took the pitcher, poured it into the basin, grabbed the basin, and walked over to the first disciple's feet and grabbed his feet and started to wash them. God washed their feet. And I'm just trying to think about this. You can imagine the confusion and uneasiness that must have just hung in the room like a cloud. Here they were walking and talking like a bunch of puffed up roosters. They're at loggerheads over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And in their concern, none of them would humble themselves to wash each other's feet. So Jesus stooped down and he began to do it. They were speechless. Nobody talked. This is love to the uttermost when you think about it. It was a lesson that Jesus is going to teach him on that was better than a lecture. He could have lectured him on what it was, but instead he got into action. And he goes in front of them, and in my back of my head I'm thinking, these guys never forgot this lesson. None of them knew what he was doing here is that this humiliation was only a precursor of the humiliation of the cross. In other words, what he's saying to them is, is how would these men understand the humility of the cross if they first didn't understand the humility of the towel? Fellas, you think this is humiliation? You've seen nothing yet. In 24 hours, I'm going to be humbled beyond anything you can imagine. I'm going to be treated like a complete criminal, and I'm going to die. This is nothing what I'm doing right now. And at the core of it, the reason that it robs life from us, it just kills humility at this point. We've got to remember that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's something just so amazing like this. At this moment, as Jesus is humbled, he was experiencing life. If you're afraid of humility, don't be. Because the moment that you're humbled, God pours his grace into that moment. So as Jesus moved from the silent disciple to silent disciple, he finally gets to Peter. <laughs> I love Peter. He's so perplexed. You can tell he's a guy that doesn't like awkward silence. He must have just been sitting there, you know, and everyone else is going, what's he doing? I don't know what Jesus is doing. And Peter's going, oh, I got it. I'll take care of this. And the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, isn't it? Verse 6, he poses this question. Lord, do you wash my feet? 
For Peter, it was too demeaning and too convicting. And I'm sure he, he must have just pulled back his feet. And, and Jesus replied, look at verse 7. What I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you're going to understand. Basically, he's looking at Peter and going, Peter, you're ignorant. And someday you're going to realize that I came into this world not to be served, but to serve. I came into this world in a unique way to be humiliated here. And I'm showing my humility. And Peter, deal with it. Peter's still thinking that the kingdom is truly coming, and it is. And he sees King Jesus there in front of him. And and what he's saying to them is, Jesus, get up, you're king. You can't wash my feet. You will never, ever, ever wash my feet. Get up, Jesus. So Jesus says in verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter, I got to give you a bath. And I love Peter's response. Fine, Lord, then not only my feet, but my hands and my head. Do it all. (laughs) Then, Lord, I'll take a bath is the idea. So typical of Peter. From one extreme, don't do it to the other. Then just soak me, baby. Wash every part of me. So what is Christ saying in verse 8? I think it's important to get this. Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. First, he's saying, Peter, you've got to recognize that I came here to be humiliated. That's what he's referring to here. He's teaching him now, moving from a, a physical example to a spiritual example. People, Peter, you've got to humble yourself to accept my humiliation. If you're ever going to follow me, Peter, you're going to have to humble yourself because in the 24 hours, I'm going to go to the death, the death of a criminal on a cross. Think about that, Peter. You're going to call people to follow a criminal that was crucified on the far end of the Roman kingdom on top of a trash heap. And the only people that are going to believe that are going to have to humble themselves to believe that. Peter, you've got to let this happen. Because Peter, and here's the important part, if I don't wash people, they have no part with me. Peter, this world is dirty. It's full of sin. It's what separates man from God is their sinfulness. And Peter, unless they come to me in that same humble attitude, they will never experience my cleanness, Peter. You've got to understand that, that the message that we're calling people to is, is they have to humble themselves and come to the crucified one and say, I can't clean myself. I'm completely inadequate. And humble themselves in front of the mighty God and say, would you please cleanse me? And the idea is that the moment that people come to God and finally that way, Jesus says, I will clean them. Wow. He's going to continue. Verse 10. Jesus said to him, and this is cool still too. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. The person that is washed, as his point is, they don't have to come back for more cleansing. They don't have to be cleaned over and over again. Peter, look, you're a follower of mine. You are clean. Yeah, Judas isn't, but you are. And this is important, what he's telling Peter, that the only way that you can be clean is if Jesus washes. There's no other way to God. He's clear on that. But Peter, the one that takes a bath, now only needs to wash his feet. What's he saying there? Well, in the Orient at this time, a person would take a bath early on, and then as they walked around the city that day, just the city dirt and everything would cake onto their feet. And the idea is, is that yes, they were clean, but they needed to get their feet washed. 
In other words, what he's saying to Peter, not only do you have to humbly come to me first and I will clean you, I will make you one of mine. You don't have to ever do it again. It's only one time that I come to you. But if you want to keep having the life that I promised, if you want to stay alive, then on a daily, ongoing basis, you're going to have to knock the mud and the dirt and the animal waste off your feet. Peter, this world sticks to you. And so the same humble way you came to me the first time, you only need to come once, but on an ongoing basis. And that's what true Christians know, is that they know I have to keep coming back to him because 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to do what? Cleanse us. Peter, you don't have to keep coming back to me asking for salvation, but you need to come back to me because this world is sticking to you. And if you're ever going to experience life, Peter, you've got to knock that stuff off of you. In fact, I would say this. Those that don't come to Christ on an ongoing basis in humility for foot washing show that they're probably not cleansed the first time. The mark of a true follower of Jesus is, is that at the end of it, we hate the dirt that sticks to us, that keeps us from that intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, that we might have life and life to its full. The reason I confess sin is not because confessing sin somehow makes me a a better person. I confess sin because I want that relationship with God that this world is it just cakes to me, hinders me from. I'm completely clean. I'm one of his, but my feet just get dirty. So as Jesus modeled this life for them, for us, he showed us what it is to truly be alive by, by loving to the fullest extent. That's the first thing. Loving his enemies, that's the next. And now he says, if you're going to live life to the fullest, you need to love, love, uh, love in action. That's how you're going to live this way. But here's the last one that we're going to get to today. Jesus is going to now model something for us so key here about what it means to have life to its full. He showed them if you want to be alive, you need to make your theology practical and applicational. That's what's key here. Jesus lived theology, not theory. Have you ever been around a person that lives theory? They're the Cliff Clavin of life. They sit around and they talk about nothing, and at the end of the day, you ask them about how they lived it, and they tell you, well, I haven't done it, I just know a lot about it. Jesus says, following Christ is not theory, it's theology. And while showing his love, Jesus just stopped with Peter and he gives him this great spiritual lesson. He teaches him so much about what it is, what's in a humble man's heart. But the climax is in verse 12 when Jesus finishes washing their feet. Notice what happens. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his, and taken his garments and put his clothes back on, he was seated again and he said to them, so cool here, now it's lesson time, boys. Do you understand what I've done for you? Do you get what I'm doing, fellas? What I'm trying to teach you? For too many people, Christianity is theoretical. They've sat, they've heard hundreds and hundreds of sermons. They've sat in Bible study after Bible study. And listen, I think our faith gives us plenty of room to to study and explore Scripture. But really, our faith is supposed to be deeply and intensely practical. The humility that he's teaching about should impact how we treat people. It should impact how we treat our spouse. It should impact how we treat our kids. It should impact how we spend our money. It should impact how we spend our time. It should impact how we hang out with our friends. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, is that anytime you do anything in this world, you don't approach it from arrogance. Everything that you do should come about from this idea of humility. Do you guys get what I've done for you? 
This humility he was teaching would impact everything. Man, I've sat around, I've sat in seminary where everybody argued theological systems and you're just like, ah. But what he's saying is, is that if you really want to live life, you have to do it. Look at verse 17. Jesus said you will be blessed, you'll be truly alive, not if you talk about these things or study these things or meditate on these things, not that those aren't important, but we don't experience life, we aren't truly alive until it is lived, until we do it. It's not enough to have a, a, a theology of Christ's humility. We need to now bring theology of that alive in our life. We need humility. It's not enough now to, to sit down and go, oh, you know, I, I love this, the servanthood of Jesus. We need to serve. It's not enough to, to be blown away by the grace of God. We need to be gracious is the idea. You can sit around and sing amazing grace all you want until amazing grace comes out of your life. You will never experience life as God intended it. You won't be blessed, he says, until you do these things. He's not going to allow them to get away with just sitting around and doing nothing. He's going to call them to a humility that's going to demand the Holy Spirit so they can show love. And now he tells them the reason in verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. That's the reason he's teaching them. Fellas, I want you to learn, and I want you to experience what you've seen me do. He moves from the greater to the lesser. His idea is, look, if your teacher does it, and if your teacher experiences life, doesn't it make sense that the lesser you guys would experience life? He isn't asking them to substitute faith with works, somehow earn God's favor. He says, you're clean. You have God's favor. But now act out of a different way. Be compelled by love. Men, don't live for pats on the back. Live for the honor of God. Guys, love people to the fullest extent. Guys, know that, that I love you intensely. Love your enemies and know that it pleases your Father in heaven. Fellas, love in action so that people might see your good deeds and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Guys, make it real. But listen to me clear. He wants to make sure that everybody understands it won't be drudgery. That's why he says in verse 17, you will be blessed. You will be happy. You will be completely satisfied. Not when you read about it or talk about it. He was the first Nike guy, but when you do it. Some of you aren't experiencing life like Jesus intended because you're not living it. You talk about it. You meditate on it. You do need Bible studies on it, but you will never experience the life Jesus has promised till you do it. So let me break this down for you as simple as I can today. I almost did a foot washing service. <laughs> I thought if I could put like a few hundred basins up here and let you come wash feet, that would be cool. And gross. And I know some groups, they do practice foot washing on a regular basis. Some really good friends of mine, great followers of Jesus, and I've seen it, and it's beautiful. But my fear is you're going to pair up with your best friend or your wife or take your kid up there when what made this night so powerful was that Jesus washed his friend's feet, but he also washed who? His enemy. I 
think that's the real hard task. That's what almost would make it not quite the same way as what Jesus did that night. And so I'm trying to think through as you leave today what I want to tell you, and that's this. You need to beg God not to wash feet, but it goes all the way back to verse 1. You need to beg God to show you the love of Jesus. And I know a lot of you have enemies in this world, don't you? People that don't like you. And if you really want to be experiencing life, sure, spouses wash each other's feet, your kids' feet, the people you love's feet, please do. There's nothing more beautiful than that. But I would say take it to the next degree. Love those that are hard to love. Not because you can, but because Christ will do it in you. And so today, if you need prayer for this, maybe you're just self-focused, maybe you're one right now not experiencing life, we would love to pray with you. So if you need prayer today, you can just get up after this. We're not going to sing. We're going to do something else. But if you want to, just come over. We would love nothing more than to pray for you, that God would give you this heart to love people in this way that Jesus talks about, that you might experience life and life to the full. Maybe you've never been baptized before. Let me tell you something. Today's the day. If you're a follower of Jesus, obey him. His commandments actually bring life. And so he's commanded you to be baptized. And now you have to know whether or not you're going to trust him to experience now the life, the relationship that he's promised you as you obey him. Maybe also, maybe some of you have heard what I've talked about today and you want to follow this Jesus, this man of the towel. And so today, if you'd want to do that, I'd like to invite you up. And you can go over to the prayer room. I'm going to pray for you right now if you'd like to get up now. And then we're going to do something just a little bit different to close the service. Let me pray. Father, I do beg you that you would do a work out there. Father, I know there's people out there that are battling like I have to actually love people like you've called us to love people. So would you right now move in their hearts to seek out prayer, to seek you, more importantly, to move in our hearts that we might be a people of the towel. I beg you, Father, in your precious name we pray. Amen.